Mashiach, the Messiah. And all of a sudden, these Christians say, well, what are we going to do with these people? I mean, they recanted their faith, and now they're recanting their recantation, and they want back, what do we do? What do we do? And it seems that some of them, and maybe some of those people themselves, said to them, well, look, I'm, I'm willing to say, I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to trust in Christ and become a Christian all over again. And I think the writer is saying, look, you can't do that. Because look at what he says next. That by doing this, he says, it is impossible for you to get to repentance since they again crucify for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. If I, once having trusted Christ, make a recantation of faith and then go back on that and say, I really am a believer, what he's saying is, I can't be saved all over again because I am still saved. (laughs) Because to say that I need to be saved all over again, in effect, is to say that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient. He needs to be crucified all over again, in effect. That's the problem. Because he doesn't need to be crucified all over again. His sacrifice for sin covers all sin, including my sin of unbelief or my sin of reneging on my faith or whatever it is, right? His sacrifice for sin covers all of that. So he's not renewing me to repentance, which remember he says in chapter 6, verse 1, that's part of the foundation of our faith, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, right? So it's a foundational thing. I can't go back and lay a new foundation because the foundation is still there. What I'm saying is that I can't undo my salvation because I didn't do it in the first place. See that? (laughs) It wasn't I who saved me. It was God who saved me. I love the passage in John 10 where it says, Jesus says, these these people that are in my Father's hand and no one will pluck pluck them out of his hand. And of course, there are people who say, well, no, but they could jump out except they didn't read the rest of the verse because the rest of the verse says, and they shall never perish. That's what it says. So, again, it's, it's vital that we understand our position in Christ is inviolate. There's nothing that can change it. Nothing. I can't undo it because I didn't do it. So how presumptuous of me to think that some action of mine can undo what God did. I was born of my mother in 1949. And yes, I'm 70 years old. You can do the math. I don't care. Uh, (laughs) And she has long since gone to be with the Lord. But I am her son There is nothing I can do to change that. I can't undo something that happened in history. 
Number one, because I didn't do it. It was done to me in effect, wasn't it? Same thing with salvation. If I am born again in the family of God, I can't undo that. The new birth is an action of God. Jonah says salvation is of the Lord. Okay. So I think what the writer is saying to them here is, look, if somebody's in that situation, they recant, they come back in repentance, and they want to rejoin the community of God, that's fine. But they they don't need to be saved all over again because they're still saved. Because to say that they need to be saved all over again is to try to undo the work of Christ. Can't do that. It was once for all kind of thing. Now, you understand why I believe that despite the fact that many people believe this passage is, oh, it really teaches you can lose your salvation. I think properly understood, it is the strongest passage in the scripture that indicates that you can't lose your salvation. Because properly understood in the context of what he's saying, it is the exact opposite of that. He's saying you can't redo your salvation because you can't undo it. All right. That's a lot of material in a a little short time, but we need to press on to the rest of the chapter. Because, having said all of that, um, we've talked about this. He's, he encourages them through the entire book to, to grow up, to go on to maturity, to stay connected, and then maybe back to repentance means some thought they need to be saved all over again. We've talked about that. Okay. Uh, and then we have this analogy that he draws. And there are just as many people who think this analogy is a problem as think that verses 4 through 6 are a problem. Because look at what he says. What it says is, I'll find it in my notes here because it's easier to read from there. (laughs) Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Okay? And people say, see there, it talks about being burned. It's got to mean they end up in hell. That isn't what it says, is it? Think about this. This ground, as he describes it, starts out fruitful, doesn't it? It says it's bringing forth vegetation, fruit, that benefits the people who till it, and it receives a blessing from God. Okay, again, I think clearly he's talking about believers. And now it becomes a mess, thorn and thistle, thorns and thistles. And then he says, it is worthless. And that, that I think, is an unfortunate translation the word is adakimas, and it means not approved. They didn't pass the test. And by the way, that may mean not only in the minds of those people looking on, but maybe in their own minds. They say, I had this test in my life, this horrible thing, and I failed it. And so I'm worthless. And, and then it says, close to being cursed. I love that because the word is cursed or cursed with a prayer, as it were, but then that little word 
close or near to, engus in Greek, and it means not quite there, but in the neighborhood. <laughs> they're not cursed, but they're close to it. And by appearances, they may look that way. But here's the thing you have to remember. When ground is burned, it is not destroyed. Right? If you have this patch of ground and it used to be fruitful and it used to bring forth wonderful crops and now it's just a mess. It's got thorns and thistles and weeds and what do you do with it? Well, one thing you can do with it is burn it. That clears it and it fertilizes it. Isn't that interesting? And so the ground then ends up being returned to fruitfulness as a result of this process, doesn't it? That's fascinating. And I think that's what he's saying because the very next thing he says is, but beloved, we are concerned of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He says, I'm warning you, and it sounds very severe, and it is, but we're convinced of better things of you people. I suspect that being burned is not a pleasant experience even for the land itself because it's hot and uncomfortable and it hurts and all of that. But the end result is renewed fruitfulness, isn't it? But he's telling them, you don't have to go through that. You can be obedient and press on in your maturity without having to go through that. The choice really is yours. And that's what he says, that we're convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Let's pause there for just a moment. He says he's expecting something far better than a cleansing fire. God recognizes and approves of their service to the saints. He says, look, you may think at times that your life is a mess and a failure, and in some ways it probably is, but you are still doing the work of service. You're still ministering to God's holy ones, his saints. And God recognizes that. He's not unjust in looking at our lives. And he recognizes the service you render to other believers. And he, this writer desires that they will be hopeful, fruitful, patient, and inheritors of God's promises. Look at what he says. For men swear... No, that's wrong. That's surely been there. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says you have a choice in your life. You can choose to be sluggish. You can choose to not understand what, what God has given you in this amazing life he's given us. Or you can choose to recognize it and to follow him. And the result of that choice 
is he says, faith and patience. But he also talks about realize the full assurance of hope until the end. I love the word hope. These people, many of them were in a difficult situation. They were not only being persecuted by other Jews, they were being persecuted by the Romans. And here's why. Because Judaism in Roman law was, was a recognized religion. It was a religio licita, which means, or licita, which means licit, a, a legal religion. But these people who had been excluded from the synagogue were now engaged in a non-legal religion. So they were not only being persecuted by the Jews, they were being persecuted by the Romans. And that gets a little tiring, I'm sure. Um, but he says you can have full assurance of hope until the end. Hope is a great word. In the New Testament, it doesn't mean something that, well, I kind of hope so, but I'm not sure. The word hope in, in New Testament Greek means something that is not yet realized, but it's trusted because I know it's coming in the future. That's a really important idea that no matter what my situation now, I know, I absolutely know that someday I will be in the presence of God. I will be looking at the face of Christ. I know that. That's my hope. And everything else, whatever it is that happens to me, I know that's where I'm going to end up. Isn't that a freeing kind of thing? It can make us fearless if you let it. So, and then he talks about inheriting the promises, which is such a great thing, but we don't want to spend too much time on it. Last part of the chapter says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He goes back with them to Abraham. Now Abraham was a great figure and they knew who Abraham was. They knew the story very well. These are Jews after all. And they remembered that when God called Abram when he was in Ur and then later in Haran and he told him to come, he says, to a land that I will show you. Remember that? <laughs> no, think about this. You're a 75-year-old man. And, of course, people live longer then. But even so, you're not a spring chicken. And uh, God says, okay, I want you to go someplace. Where, where is that, God? I'll show you when you get there. Oh, thanks. That sounds so good. Um, anyway, so Abram did it. He uprooted and took his family and found himself in Canaan. And then in chapter 15 of Genesis... <clears throat> God came to Abram, and he had this incredible vision, and God cut a covenant with Abram. When he, when he called him, chapter 12, he says, I will give you a land. In chapter 15, he says, I have given you this land. So God cut the covenant with Abram in Genesis 15. And in that process, God set up a land, a seed, and a blessing as a part of that covenant with Abraham. Abraham had no children at this time, but God said, you will have offspring, you'll have seed like the stars of the heavens, like the sands of the seashore. 
And then it says a really remarkable thing. And Abram believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abram said, despite all appearances, if God says, then that's, I know that, that's what will happen. And God reckoned that faith as righteousness in Abram. Of course, it was many years after that, many years after that, before Abram finally had any son at all. And the first son he had was with Hagar, and it was Ishmael, remember? And God says, no, that's fine. And Ishmael, I'll give him all kinds of stuff, but he's not the son of promise. You're going to have a son through Sarah. And Abram's thinking, well, I'm 100 years old at this point. Sarah is 90. Um, we're going to have a son. And of course, it tells us that Sarah heard this and laughed. Do you remember that? Which is kind of interesting. Because they named their son Itzhak, which means he laughs. That's literally what the word means. So every time she called him after that, she was reminded of the fact that she laughed at God's promise. But he did have a son, didn't he? Isaac. And then Isaac bore Jacob and Esau. And Jacob bore 12 sons, right? The children of Israel, of, Esau, of Jacob. So Abram believed God despite his situation despite the fact that it seemed hopeless, that it seemed like there was zero chance that it would happen, Abram believed. And he is encouraging them with that. You're like Abram at age 75. You're going to have a lot of stuff happen to you, and you're going to have this huge legacy, and you just have to trust me for it. That's what the writer is telling them. That's what he calls on Abram in their minds. And then he makes this interesting statement that's worth noting, that God makes an oath there. God says, as I live, this will happen. There's no one greater by whom God could swear. When we take an oath, we say, you know, by God or God help me or whatever, right? When we take that oath. There's no one by whom God can swear, so he swears by his own existence. As I live, says the Lord, this will happen. So God is, is not just promising this. God takes an oath on it. <clears throat> so the writer wants them to remember that that's the kind of God we serve. In verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which is it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. It is impossible for God to lie. We think this, we think, well, God can do anything. God can do anything he wants to do. That's true. But God cannot, he will not, Deny his nature, who he is. He is truth itself, isn't he? So God can't lie. To do so would be to violate his own person, his own being. Furthermore, if God says something, it is so. <laughs> right? He can't tell a lie because anything he says, that's what happens. So it literally is impossible for God to lie. And he says... God made this promise to us 
And he cannot lie, so we can know for sure that it will happen. That ought to be so encouraging to our hearts. So encouraging to our hearts. And then the very last part of that, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He tells them, your hope is anchored not only in God's being and in his truthfulness, but in the fact that Christ entered the most holy place with his own blood. He's going to develop that in chapter 9 to a great extent. But essentially what he's saying is that Christ entered the most holy place, the very presence of God, and in doing so became, look at what he says, our forerunner. I love that. You know what that means? That means we follow him right in there. That's what that means. He didn't just go in there for us like the high priest once a year, one day on Yom Kippur, and say, okay, I'm making atonement for the sins of the people and then i got to leave again, back out. No, no. Christ tore the veil. And he made a way for us to enter the most holy place. That's our anchor. Our anchor is Christ himself in the presence of God. And that's where we are. Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 2, right? We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Right? So the writer here is really trying to encourage them with the fact that it doesn't matter what your current situation is in terms of the eternal verities, which we believe, the eternal truths, that someday you and I will be standing in the very presence of God with our brother Christ. Wow. <laughs> Blows your mind, doesn't it? That's such an incredible idea. And that's what he's telling them. He's saying, look, hold fast to that. And then, and then of course, he, he mentions Melchizedek again. Remember, back in 5.11, he, he says, I got more to say about Melchizedek, but you guys aren't ready for it yet. And then he goes in this long thing we just looked at. But then he comes back to Melchizedek. He never loses track of where he's going. Because he's going to make a big deal about Melchizedek, after whose order Christ is a priest. That he is both king and priest, which couldn't happen in the Old Covenant. Part of the law was the king can't be the priest. Remember, that was kind of a problem for Saul, if you recall. And it became a problem for Uzziah, too, when he intruded into the office of the priest and was stricken with leprosy as a result of it. Very serious thing as far as God's concerned, right? But Christ is king and priest. And he uses Melchizedek as a type of him. That he is king of righteousness, king of peace, and he is our high priest. Wow. There's so much depth, so much gravitas, to use a modern word. It's actually not a modern word. It's a Latin word. But anyway, uh, the idea that there is weight to our faith, isn't there? Paul talks about the, 
the problems of our present life, the sufferings which we now endure, are not worthy to be compared with the weight of glory that is to be revealed in us. That's a wonderful idea, isn't it? That the glory of God, which we will ultimately share, is a weighty thing. Isn't that great? Just, wow. <laughs> Just kind of will envelop us and wrap around us and we'll feel its weight and think, wow, that, that just, it just blows our mind. We don't really understand it. I mean, we can know things about it, but we don't really understand this, do we? Okay, uh, time is gone. <laughs> and I'm sorry it was such a Bible in a blur kind of thing, but uh, this is a hugely important chapter. It is hugely important because the... The impact of this book is such that it really does, in a very real sense, take all of the information we have in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and tell us and show us how what we're doing now is all built on that foundation. That's why this book is so important. That's why it's such a, a wonderful book. But it's also why it can be hard for us to understand because we're not Jews for the most part. So I think that depends. I you know, I mean that would be my suggestion on that that I don't know of a single Jew in my experience who's read the book. <laughs> Maybe they would if I invited them to, but it says a lot of things that are really problematic for modern Jews. Because the argument ultimately is our faith really is in the mainstream of God's revelation and God's activity among men. It started back there with creation and with Abram through Isaac and Jacob and the sons of Jacob, eventually to the line of David and the person of Christ. And that is what forms the foundation for what we believe today. It really is in a single line of revelation of God. But to a Jew, that's like, for most Jews, that's a real, a real problem, a real showstopper. So, All right. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. This, this was fun. <laughs> Thank you.